What's up, everyone? I'm your girl, Millie Red, and welcome to the Criminality Report. For the month of February, we are covering cases that ignited the civil rights movement. Please keep in mind that this podcast was created for adult audiences only. These episodes will contain themes which may be triggering and feature content warnings portraying graphic descriptions of violence, talks on sex and sexuality, conversations about mental illness, and possibly really uncomfortable language. Listener and reader discretion is advised. Please practice self-care and self-love. And remember to ask for assistance if you need it. Now, let's get to this episode. your girl lady lily and my name is millie red and you're listening to the criminality report the criminality report happy black history month y'all happy black history month happy black history month yeah yeah so it's important to always stay enlightened and educate yourself although we should be learning black history all year round because if we're considered americans it's also american history right Take a little Mm -hmm. extra time this month to learn some facts about Black Americans. Also, remember, Black Americans encompass people of African descent. So African Americans, Africans, Jamaicans, Haitians, etc. This is a great segue to just explain that not everyone identify as African American. So let's just keep in mind that how we identify can be different. Absolutely. So... We are still continuing our month-long series on Black historical crimes. Our last episode was on a young man named Emmett Till, who was 14 years old and was brutally lynched by two white men because he whistled at a white woman. If you didn't hear that episode, stop now and go listen. Yeah, stop. Like, stop now and go listen. (laughs) Tonight's episode We are talking about an NAACP leader who paved the way for so many future leaders and was eventually assassinated with his wife on, guess what, Christmas Day. Mm -hmm. This is the story about Harry T. Moore. Okay, so before we talk about what actually happened, we're going to give you a brief history lesson on the NAACP and the Ku Klux Klan. The NAACP, also known as the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, was created in February of 1909. The organization has also has always promised to champion equal rights, eliminate racial prejudice, and advance the interest of colored citizens with respect to voting rights, legal justice, and educational and employment opportunities. It's actually the largest and oldest civil rights organization in the U.S. 
It was created in New York City by white and black activists who were tired of the violence against black people. So little known fact as to the actual event that caused the creation of the NAACP. There was a race riot in Springfield, Illinois in 1908. The population was 47,000 people with only 2,500 blacks. So for y'all, the math right there is 5% of the population was black. It all began because there were reports that a black man had sexually assaulted a white woman. I feel like this is a reoccurring thing of like what happened during that time. A white Mm -hmm. mob tried to go to the jail and kill him and another black prisoner, but the police got them out of town safely. So the mob was so angry that they destroyed the business of a white business owner, Harry Lopper, who had provided the car for them to get away. The mob, mm -hmm, yep. The mob also destroyed a black business district and a poor black community where they lynched a barber. And I'm sorry, but for people who said that black people back then were savages and they were violent, I mean, these white mobs were the violent ones. This actually spanned over a few months where this mob was literally destroying black wealth and killed, harassed, and terrified black residents, um, as well as white residents who helped them. So this was the straw that broke the camel's back and the NAACP was formed. So here are the founding members um, of the NAACP. Um, Some of them are black and some of them are white. So we have W.E.B. Dubois, Ida B. Wells, Archibald Grimke, Mary Church, and then the white founders are Mary White Ovington, Henry Moskowitz, William English Walling, and Oswald Garrison Villard. Now let's talk about the Ku Klux Klan, also known as the KKK. The KKK was founded in 1865 and extended into almost every southern state by 1870. It started off as a social club with former Confederate soldiers. It coincided with the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, where a lot of policies passed where pro-equal protections for Blacks and pro-helping previously enslaved people gained certain rights. The KKK, along with other white male organizations, dedicated their efforts to be violent towards leaders, both black and white, who were for these policy changes. Members often wore and still wear long white robes and hoods and carry out their attacks at night. They also rode horses and even the horses were hooded. Which is crazy. That's pretty bad when the horses are hooded, too. Yeah. The organization lost traction for years, but regained popularity around 1915, where white Protestants began to revive the organization due to popularity of Thomas Dixon's 1905 book, The Klansman, and the film adaptation, Birth of a Nation. If y'all don't know what Birth of a Nation is, it's considered one of the most racist films in American history. Mm -hmm. It follows two families, 
a Northern family and a Southern family. It also shows really racist stereotypes of blacks and how the KKK is a heroic group that would ensure the protection of American values, white women and white supremacy. This new generation was not just anti-black, but they were against Roman Catholics, Jews, foreigners, and organized labor. But you know what I There's, thought was interesting um, really quick? Mm-hmm. That, again, these are white Protestants. These are yeah. supposed Christians. Christians. Their symbol became burning crosses and membership peaked in the 1920s. When the Great Depression occurred, you saw the KKK temporarily disband. But during the Civil Rights Movement, it surged and we saw more bombings, beatings, shootings, and lynchings. You also saw more well-established members who were lawyers, doctors, law enforcement officers, etc. And just in case you don't know what lynching is, it's an extreme form of violence where a mob tries to invoke justice without a trial. And the sentence is usually execution after torturing and mutilating a person. The state of Florida in particular has lynched more black people per capita than any other state in U.S. history. Good old Florida. Good old Florida. The Klan at one point had over 4 million members. Today, it has between three to 6,000 members. It's hard to say the membership numbers because it's taboo to be a member now. All right. So now that we gave y'all a little history lesson, let's return back to NAACP leader Harry T. Moore. Mr. Moore was born on November 18, 1905, in Houston, Florida, near the Panhandle. Mm. He was the only child of Johnny and Rosa Moore. His father worked on water tanks and also ran a store in front of their house. Harry's father died in 1914 when he was nine years old. Harry's mother, Rosa, was struggling after her husband died, and she ended up sending Harry to live with her sister in Daytona Beach, Florida, to ensure Mm -hmm. that he had a chance at a better education. The following year, he moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and spent the next three years living with three of his aunts. Two were educators, and one was a nurse. I'm sorry, I just have the the urge to say, Duval! Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. uh, I just did. Why? (laughs) Because I just did. That brought me back. (laughs) to our college days i know i just had the urge y'all i'm so sorry it's a florida thing if y'all don't understand like you just have to be from florida to understand so oh my gosh anyway jacksonville back in the day was considered like the harlem of florida which is so interesting to me yeah considering how jacksonville is like now yeah and what Jacksonville was known to be mm-hmm. when we were in college. Mm-hmm. So I just find that really interesting that it was that. Yes. I thought that was really interesting too. Um, like I wish I could have seen that actually back in the day. Right. 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 So the black community was so rich in culture, intellect, and wealth. 
So Harry enrolled in the high school program of Florida Memorial College. For those in Florida, we know that as FLOMO. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> After he graduated with a normal degree, which was equivalent to a high school diploma, he accepted a teaching job in Cocoa, Florida in 1925. FLOMO is, is actually located in Miami. Yes. So... He, um, after spending three years in Jacksonville, he went back to live with his mother. And then from there, he went to Miami to get a degree. Yes, 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 yes. It is in Miami. Mm -hmm. So, um, so he moved back to Cocoa in, um, Cocoa, Florida in 1925. So now we get into where my grandmother was actually like, this is around the time when my grandmother was there as a little girl. So this wow. is this is kind of weird for me because I think he might have taught my grandmother. That's because, interesting. Yes, because when I got to this part, he taught fourth grade for the next two years. My grandmother was in the fourth grade around this time. And living in that area? Yes. This was really crazy to me when I was um when I was um looking at the documentary and I was doing mm-hmm. research on this. Um, I was like, oh, my gosh, I think he might have taught my grandmother and he might. No, he wouldn't have taught my great aunt. But I de- I definitely think he probably taught my my grandmother because my grandmother was I think she was in the fourth grade around this time. Wow. Mm-hmm. While in Brevard County, he met a beautiful older woman, 23 year old Harriet Vida Sims. It's It's crazy that. 23s older but whatever he was 20 years old by the way so it was older so within a year they were married and harriet's family was totally against this totally against this um however they continued on and prevailed they shortly after built a house near her parents house and he was promoted to principal of the titusville colored school they had two daughters they adored, Annie Rosalia. Her nickname was Peaches. It's actually kind of cute. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born in 1928 and Juanita Evangeline, um, who was born in 1930. In 1934, Mr. Moore formed the Brevard County chapter of the NAACP with the help of the all-black Florida State Teachers Association and NAACP attorney Thurgood Marshall, he filed the first lawsuit in a Southern state to ensure black and white teacher salaries were equal. As you know, back in that time in 1934, he lost a case, but it caused many other lawsuits that eventually led to equalized pay. Mr. Moore was completely invested in the NAACP. They had to have secret meetings due to the possibility of violence from the KKK and other racist groups. In 1941, Harry organized a state conference and became an unpaid executive secretary. The state conference was a success, but brought a lot of attention to groups who were against their movement. He protested unequal salaries, segregated schools, and black voting rights. In 1943, Mr. Moore started protesting lynchings and police brutality. 
he would actually do his own investigations and investigated every lynching in Florida until his death. That's amazing. That is amazing. And that's a lot of dedication, too. Like, he was his own detective. He was. And and in the documentary, he he did a lot of writing of letters. And his yes. letters were very eloquent. Eloquently yes. written. His letters were interestingly captivating. Mm-hmm. Like, I wanted to listen to the next letter. Mm-hmm. In a a matter of like two or three pages, you can tell what was going down. Yeah. And he wasn't Just, afraid. Like he wasn't holding anything back in these letters. And the thing is that the tone of the letters weren't angry. It yeah. was very respectful. Mm-hmm. He was not only writing letters to the NAACP. He was writing letters to white politicians. The governor. Were, yes. Mm-hmm. He was writing Sheriff's letters offices, to judges, right, all of right. that. Mm-hmm. Mr. Moore also aggressively spent six years registering blacks to vote, which is brave during that Very time. Very brave. The state went from 5% to 31% of all eligible black voters registered. That's incredible. Yes. Which is why it is so important to register to vote. Voting is such an important legal right. Yes. And if you're not a registered voter, we highly recommend that you become a registered voter. Yes. I mean, we literally weren't allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. Less than 100 years ago, we weren't allowed to vote. Mr. Moore made a name for himself and was doing incredible things for black people in Florida. White leaders were paying attention. So in June 1946, Mr. Moore and his wife were fired from their teaching jobs. Mr. Moore decided to take a full-time paid job for the Florida NAACP. Mr. Moore worked so hard his first two years in the position. Membership grew to over 10,000 members and 63 branches. However, Mr. Moore and the national leadership had issues with each other. The national leadership was upset that membership numbers were low, but they failed to realize that membership nationwide had dropped over 60% due to dues being raised from a dollar to two dollars, which adjusted for inflation could amount to about like, um, I want to say $25 to $35 now today. Mm -hmm. So membership in Florida dropped to 3,000 members. They had national leaders calm down and investigate what was happening. And they ousted Mr. Moore from his paid position but allowed him to keep an unpaid state position. That's really messed up because he did so much stuff for the state of Florida. I mean, the amount of people that he got registered to vote, all of the letters that he wrote, mm-hmm. all of these different lawsuits that he was you know, getting involved in, the investigations. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then for them to just be like, oh, well, you know, membership numbers have dropped. We don't want you there anymore. It's like, but but you increased dues. What did you think was going to happen? And in the whole entire nationwide organization, the membership has dropped 60%. So now this man doesn't have a job. 
Now this man doesn't have a job. He can't work in the state of Florida because... He's blacklisted. Right. He was definitely blacklisted. And all of that for black people, all of that for the Mm -hmm. NAACP. So Mr. Moore made a lot of enemies during his time working for the NAACP. Yeah. One of his biggest enemies would end up being Sheriff Willis McCall of Lake County. We're going to briefly talk about a case I want y'all to do more research on for your own knowledge. So this is the Groveland rape case. Mm. Yeah, this is, we're not going to get into this case very deeply, but um, we're just going to get into it superficially. Basically what happened was in July, 1949, four young black men were accused of raping a white woman. A white mob went crazy, burning down the city, and they actually shot one of the men who was accused over 400 times. Yeah. I mean, riddled with bullets. So the young men were found guilty, and two of the men were sentenced to death. However, the convictions were overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. On November 6, 1951, McCall was driving the two and he shot both of them, but didn't realize one survived. Yeah. Long story short, Mr. Moore wrote letters and called for McCall's suspension and indictment for murder because they also were beaten severely before their convictions were overturned. Mm-hmm. So on December 25th, 1951, at around 10.20 a.m., Mr. Harry T. Moore and Mrs. Harriet Moore were sleeping in their beds. It was the day of their wedding anniversary that they had celebrated so many other times. Mm -hmm. It was also Christmas Day. Harriet's mother and Peaches, their daughter, were sleeping in another room. All of a sudden, a bomb that was hidden under the house under their room, under their bed, on the side that Mr. Moore was sleeping on specifically, the bomb exploded and destroyed the room and their side of the house. So to reiterate, the bomb was inside the house, underneath the bed, where... Mr. Moore slept. No. So the bomb was under the house. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so I actually, I actually had an opportunity to go see the house cause they rebuilt it and made it a, uh, like a museum. And mm-hmm. the house is, it's up. Um, like it's not on the ground. So it's actually like built up like off of the ground. And so you're, there's a crawl space underneath the house. So under that crawl space underneath the house, they placed where the bomb, bomb was. Yes. They placed a bomb underneath the beds, but more specifically on the side that Mr. Moore slept on. And that was outside, not inside yes, of the home. That was outside okay. of the house, underneath the crawl space of the home. Does that make sense? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Their room and in their side of the house was destroyed. But um luckily Peaches and her grandmother were not injured 
their other daughter, Juanita, um, she was gone. Um, she was not in the house. She did get the news and she rushed down. Unfortunately, there were no hospitals in Brevard County that took coloreds at that time. So they had to go to a black doctor in Sanford, Florida. On the way to the hospital, Mr. Moore died. Mm -hmm. When they got to the hospital, Mrs. Moore told the doctor to do something for Harry. Do something. You know, she, she she was holding on to him. She's do something. And the doctor looked at Mr. Moore and knew he was dead. Mm-hmm. And she just, he just said, give him a shot just to appease Mrs. Moore. Yeah. He was um, in a documentary. He was talking to a nurse mm-hmm. or, an, or another medical staff mm-hmm. and just told that staff, give him a shot. Yeah. But he was already dead. He was already dead. And I think he died in the arms of his mother-in-law. His mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't his mother. It was her mother, right? I That I was not sure of. It's It had to have been, nope. I would think, because the mother-in-law was in the house with them. But in the documentary, they made it seem like it was his mother. They did. So I don't know if that was a, a, a misquote or, or what. So not sure on that. But... It was either his mother or his mother-in-law. Mr. Moore's funeral was on January 1st, 1952 at St. James Missionary Baptist Church. It was That actually wasn't his church, but it was the only mm-hmm. church in town big enough to hold a large crowd. The FBI was everywhere. They were literally everywhere in the church. Um, mm-hmm. And they had to evacuate the church. Um before the funeral to to look for bombs to make sure that it was safe before the funeral started. So everyone was there. Even the NAACP leaders that ousted Mr. Moore out of his paid Mm -hmm. job. Another, another person was there. Mrs. Harriet Moore was also there. She wanted to see the body before the funeral. And People were really disrespectful as far as the media. They wanted to take pictures. And Mm -hmm. her daughters were like, nah, we not doing this. And the daughter, um, I think it was Juanita, she said that one of the journalists said, you know, you're going to be next. Yeah, the journalist was threatening her Mm -hmm. for just standing in front of her mother. Yep. I thought that was terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. So eight days after the bombing... Mrs. Moore was still in the hospital. She kept asking for more cover. She's probably going through shock. She said she didn't trust someone there. That's what the daughter said in the documentary. And then all of a sudden she started spitting up blood. And then she was pronounced dead on January 2nd, 1952. Nine days after Mr. Moore had died. And the daughter got emotional because they just, they put the sheet over her mom's body. So the doctor said that the trip to the funeral home had killed her. But the people who knew her closely say that she just gave up, you know. That is so unfortunate. 
It was. That was her Such- life. Like, Mr. Moore was her life. Um, I think that she knew her daughters were well taken care of. In the documentary, they talked about how Mrs. Moore did not like pictures, mm-hmm. which is why her daughter was trying to um, stood in front of the journalist yes. to not take pictures because her mom is very uncomfortable. She was still in the hospital. She wasn't even supposed to be there because she was still, they were still mending her wounds mm-hmm. from the explosion. And, and here's this person trying to take a picture Mm -hmm. and not respect that she just endured a traumatic event to which she lost her husband and her home that they built yep so to continue mr moore was the first naacp official ever killed his death made national news the soviet ambassador condemned the bombing and the racism Congressman John F. Kennedy and the nation demanded for President Harry S. Truman and Florida Governor Fuller Warren to investigate this crime. J. Edgar Hoover wanted the case to be over at any cost. And those who don't know who J. Edgar Hoover was, he was the head of the bureau, the head of the FBI. He's a very controversial figure in history yes I'll say that. He, yes he was very controversial and there there are a lot of rumors out there as to what mm-hmm. his true ethnicity is yep and sexuality really also oh yeah i didn't know that but i definitely have yeah. heard, i've heard that he was white passing and everyone in his neighborhood knew that his family was white passing Oh, that I didn't know. I did read some articles about his uh, sexuality came to question. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. All of this uh, is alleged. Yes, alleged. Because Mr. Moore was well known for advocating about civil rights, he was a threat to white supremacy. During the initial investigation, FBI investigators were surprised on how easy it was for residents to purchase dynamite. Mm-hmm. I think it, it it really bothered the FBI agents at that time. Like it's a good old, you know, like um, I'm literally gonna a stick it. of gum. Right. Like, okay. Hi, how you doing? Um, Let me get, you know, a pack of uh, chicken drums and chicken thighs and, you know, a stick of dynamite. And a banana. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, this is okay. This is normal. Right. A local black resident informed the FBI that two white men were looking for where Mr. Moore lived one week before the bombing. Now, mind you, at that time, people didn't know that Mr. Moore lost his job with the NAACP. They didn't know that locally. In addition, a KKK informant reported seeing the floor plans of Mr. Moore's house. How did they get access to that? That sounds like an inside job. The FBI were thinking that maybe the Klansmen from Apopka, Orlando, and Winter Garden got together in the summer of 1951 and passed out slips of paper. One of those papers stating who would do the hit. 
almost like having the longest straw or having the shortest straw or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody would know who got the paper so they could legitimately say they don't know who did it. Since the night of the explosion, five separate investigations have been conducted. The first investigation headed by the FBI started the night of the explosion. The second investigation occurred in 1978 by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office and the Brevard County State Attorney Office. The case was reopened again in 1991 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. Then in 2004, by the Florida Attorney's General Office of Civil Rights. And lastly, the fifth and final investigation was opened in 2008 by the FBI. Each investigation implicated four individuals for their involvement in the murder of Mr. and Mrs. Moore. All four were known to be extremely violent and devout members within the Ku Klux Klan in Florida. Two were even known to be kicked out of their Georgia chapter due to their violent and unsanctioned actions. Their names were Earl J. Brooklyn, Tillman H. Curley Belvin, Joseph Cox, and Edward L. Spivey. Tillman Belvin and Earl Brooklyn were the two identified as the ones asking residents where Mr. Moore lived. Edward Spivey implicated Joseph Cox during a deathbed confession. Joseph Cox was interviewed twice by FBI, and after his second interview, he died by suicide the next day. All four suspects have died. Because of this, no arrest will ever be made, no murder charges will ever be filed, and the family of Mr. and Mrs. Moore will never have justice. So this was the first husband and wife to give their lives for the civil rights movement. In 1952, the NAACP awarded Mr. Harry Moore the highest award, the Spingarn Medal. Today, he's overlooked. His name is missing on civil rights monuments. Mm-hmm. He's been forgotten. Literally. Literally, he's been forgotten, which is a travesty, especially in the state of Florida. I, I personally feel as though I've been robbed of this knowledge, especially having growing up where he taught and lived and where he could have potentially taught my grandmother. I didn't I I didn't know anything about the story. I didn't hear about this case until 2018. Yeah. That's when I heard about this case. What's crazy about it is that he wasn't written in history books. Mhm. As much as he contributed to the civil rights movement and the the membership for the NAACP, people still don't know about his sacrifice and what he did, especially for education. Like he really focused a lot of his activism focused on black rights, education and voting equal pay. Like Mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, with, there is no Medgar Evers without 
Harry T. Moore. Period. And I think if you ask most people, have you ever heard of Harry T. Moore? They would have no idea who Harry T. Moore is. And that's just really sad. Yeah. It's really sad because he's done so much, not just for the NAACP, but he's done so much for the state of Florida. He's done so much for black people. This man literally gave his life, Mm -hmm. him and his wife, gave their lives for black people for the movement mm-hmm. and they've he was, been forgotten he was his own detective mm-hmm. getting statements and trying to make sure you know try to ensure that we continue to say the names of the victims that were that were murdered or attacked due to hatred and racism and bigotry mm-hmm and if y'all see, look this man up, okay? Because this man was fly looking, okay? This man was a very good looking man. His wife, too. Very good looking, like, very good looking couple. I mean, give these people the respect that they give them their flowers because they have not been given any flowers. Mm-hmm. This case was never solved. But they do have a courthouse named after him. and. There is a museum um, that the county has. It's, it's actually a really incredible museum. I've been there. Um, very beautiful. They rebuilt his house. Um, so when you go in there, you can see how the house m- looked back in 1951. Mm-hmm. So it's really cool. You see like where his bed was. You can see like where the bathroom was, where Peach's room was. Um, you know, what the living room looked like. And then you see, you know, it was 1951. So what the appliances looked like back then. So it was really cool. Yeah. So during this episode, we called Harry Mr. Moore because we wanted to put respect on his name. So I hope y'all learned a little something today. Yeah. And I hope you continue to go out and actively learn, especially about Black history. So, Lady Lily, what are we going to be talking about next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about a very tragic and traumatic case. And this is about the 16th Street bombing. Stay tuned for that next week. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook at the Criminality Report Podcast. Check out our website at www.thecriminalityreportpodcast.com. You can also email us at criminalityreportpodcast at gmail.com. You know, if you have any stories you want to talk about, hit us up. You know, we got one more yeah. story that we could potentially talk about after the 16th Street bombing. So mm-hmm. if you get to us on time, we can talk about it. So hit yeah. us up. Um, so where can they listen to our episodes, Lily? As always, you can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. So again, 
thank you so much for taking this journey with us and listening to each of our episodes. We really, really appreciate it. And until next week. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. My name is Lady Liddy. Oh, my gosh. Your name is Lady Liddy. (laughs) We're only like five seconds into recording. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Someone get her a memory pill. I'm Lady Liddy with the big titty. (laughs) Woo. Yeah. So please remember, we are all, we are content. Oh, <laughs> what were you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the NAACP, not the NCAA, because some people say NCAA. <laughs> um. Wait, hold on. Mm-hmm. What is the NCAA? National Collegiate Association NCAA. Oh. This is sports. <laughs> yes, that was sports. Oh. Yes. Okay. So that's the, why I didn't yes. know. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was created in New York City by white and black activists who were tired of the violence against black Americans. Shoot. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Girl, go ahead. Clear your throat. No, let me clear my throat. <laughs> these um these two black gentlemen. These, uh, but what hold about on a the others? Hold on, hold on. I said these two black gentlemen. <laughs> uh, like these two black menses. <laughs> I didn't even hear you say that. I know you did because you just kept going. It coincided with the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, where a lot of police, police, oh no. <laughs> um, you were going to say polices. <laughs> <laughs> polices. I knew it was coming. Polices. <laughs> I just bit my tongue. <laughs> What? Is it bleeding? No. You wouldn't even know. You can't see your own tongue. Girl, I gotta say that again because I heard you scratching. I didn't think you I heard that scratching, girl. That thing was deep, girl. You sounded like you were scratching plastic. That was so deep.